have you ever seen a model church? Today we're going to look at one. This church was not perfect, though. It had hypocrites, it had doctrinal errors, and it had sinners just as we do. However, there's much we can learn. So what is this church like? Well, it was an inner city church, a large church, and it had multiple staff ministry. It needed them because of the 3,000 people who were added to the church in one day, which made the total number of believers 3,120. It began with the 12 apostles. But when the 12 found that there were still not enough people to do the work, they asked the church to elect seven deacons. So they had 19 officers at that time. And the success of the church was that all of the believers were doing the work of the ministry. There's three elements that emerge from the text we're going to look at in Acts 2 that reveals this church to be healthy. You see, they were devoted to spiritual duties and spiritual attitudes, and the result was spiritual impact. Let's read Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 40. It says, With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So today we're going to look at a model church, the early church here in the book of Acts. First of all, we see that a model church is devoted to spiritual duties. That's in verse 42. Verse 42 has the four core activities of the local church. Now this church had no worldly strategies for success, but they had everything it needed for accomplishing the Lord's purposes. We too can be effective in bringing sinners to Christ if we will only follow this pattern. Notice number one, verse 42, that it was a saved church. The Bible says, they devoted themselves. Now you have to ask the question, who are the they? Because it says they, who are they? Well, if you look at verse 41, it'll answer the question. The they are the 3,000 people who were saved. They confessed faith in Jesus Christ. And how do we know they were genuine? Well, they showed their faith by continuing. So despite the persecution, they remained faithful. That is a mark of genuine salvation. After all, Jesus said in John 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. It seems obvious that the church should be composed of saved individuals. Sadly, however, many churches today are made up largely of unsaved individuals. 
Amazingly, some even try to design a church where non-Christians can feel comfortable. This can't be the goal in a church that is devoted to holiness and righteousness. Such a church will be unpopular with sinners, but they will be blessed by God. By the way, unbelievers should be allowed to attend church services. They are welcome to hear the gospel preached and the word of God expounded. They're welcome to hear our prayers of confession, to hear our anthems of praise and the calls to holiness. However, all of that should make them feel uncomfortable with their spiritual condition. Membership and service in the church are restricted to only believers. Why? Well, God's people and Satan's people cannot work together to achieve God's goals. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 14 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? To fail to exclude unbelievers from the fellowship of the church is a very serious error. What's going to happen? Well, there, there's going to be disunity and conflict that are going to result. In addition to designing the activities of the church to appeal to unbelievers, ends up giving them a false sense of security. And the result for them may be eternal tragedy. So the church has to reach out in love to those who don't know Christ. However, it must never let them feel that they are a part of the church until they come to faith in Christ. So, first of all, we've seen that they need to be, well, they were a saved church. And then number two, it was a biblical church. If you look at verse 42, it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So what is the content for the church? It is to be God's revealed truth. God designed the church to be a place where the Bible is proclaimed and explained. A commitment to the apostles' teaching is foundational to the spiritual health of every church. I love what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, verse 2. He says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Scripture is food for the believer's growth and power, and there is no other. The church today ignores the exposition and application of Scripture at its peril. That's what the prophet Hosea warned Israel. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My friends, the church cannot operate on truth it is not taught. Believers cannot function on principles they've never learned. And that's why it is important for us to search the scriptures daily. So I ask you, how are you doing in this area? Let me give you an illustration that will help lead us to the next core activity of the local church. In many Eastern European countries, like Romania, there's so many orphans institutionalized that there isn't enough staff members to take care of them. The babies 
often past toddler age, are still kept in nappies or diapers. And they're placed in cribs because there's no other way to take care of them. Occasionally, they're lifted out to be fed and have their nappies or diapers changed. There's no real physical contact with other humans, especially any of the cuddling and the holding that babies need to develop normally. As a result, they end up in a withdrawal, withdrawn state and often die from a lack of human contact. This condition has been called failure to thrive syndrome. Now we need to understand that failure to thrive syndrome can happen even in our spiritual lives. It can be avoided though, and it can be cured. But prevention doesn't happen by itself. You see, the key to avoiding the spiritual disease is through the next core activity of the local church, which is fellowship. This church was a fellowshipping church. Notice in verse 42 it says they were devoted to fellowship. You might ask, well, what is fellowship? Fellowship is the spiritual duty of believers to encourage each other to holiness and faithfulness. Now, how are you to do that? What, what is that going to look like? It, well, it's most specifically expressed through the one another commands of Scripture. For example, just look at the one another's in the Bible. Things like love one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be hospitable to one another. So the basic meaning of fellowship is partnership or sharing. It, it's, it's something you have in common with one another. So how is this partnership possible? Well, according to 1 John 1, is those who receive Jesus Christ become partners with him and then with all other believers. Well, how long does that last? That fellowship's permanent because our eternal life is forever. However, the joy associated with it may be lost through sinful neglect of its duties. For a Christian to not participate in the life of a local church is inexcusable. In fact, those who choose to isolate themselves are disobedient to God. Let's have a look at Hebrews 10, verse 24, where God is charging believers to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's verse 25. The Bible does not envision the Christian life as one lived apart from other believers. Clearly, God wants all members of the universal church to be intimately involved in local churches. So they were a fellowshipping church, because verse 42 says they were devoted to fellowship. Number four, it was a Christ-centered church. Again, notice verse 42 says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Their fellowship was symbolized by obedience to the spiritual duty of the Lord's Supper, or what some might call communion. This duty is not optional, since our Lord commanded it to every believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In communion, all believers meet on common ground, since all are sinners, saved by the grace of God. 
Communion acknowledges the work of Jesus on the cross. Communion also exemplifies the unity of believers, since all partake together symbolically of the same Lord. After all, think about what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Number five. This was also a praying church. It was a praying church. Again, this is one of those four core activities of the local church. Verse 42 says they were devoted to prayer. The first church was eagerly and persistently engaged in the duty of prayer. They relentlessly pursued divine help. And by the way, prayer is not only for individual believers, but it's for the church corporately. Sadly, prayer is much neglected in the church today. Programs, concerts, entertainment, or the testimonies of the rich and famous will draw large crowds. On the other hand, prayer meetings attract only the faithful few. That is one reason for weakness in the contemporary church. Unlike the early church, we have forgotten the Bible's commands to pray at all times and be to devoted to prayer. The first church knew the importance of pursuing spiritual duties. They knew the church must be made up of saved individuals, must be devoted to the study of the Bible, must be devoted to fellowship, must have communion and prayer. Those elements are the core activities of the local church. They are the means of grace by which the church becomes what God wants it to be. But wait, there is more. And that brings us to the second major point. The model church displays spiritual character. A model church displays spiritual character. We'll see that in verses 43 through 47. A church that fulfills the spiritual duties will find that those duties end up producing spiritual character. The point is, if you don't do right, you'll never be right. Let's look at four aspects of the church's character. What was the church's character like? Well, number one, it was an awe-inspiring church. Look at verse 43. It says, awe came upon every soul. Awe is a cool word. The word awe is phobos, and it refers to fear or a holy terror. It's related to the sense of divine presence. It describes the feeling produced when someone realizes that God is at hand. It was used in Acts chapter 5 to describe the reaction to the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. The life of this church was so genuine and spiritually powerful that everyone, that included inside and outside the church, kept feeling a sense of awe. They weren't awed by its buildings and programs, but by its supernatural character. Such an effect should be produced when the spiritual gifts are properly operating in the church. So it was an awe-inspiring church. Number two, it was a miraculous church. Look at verse 43b. 
says many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. One reason for the awe was the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. What was the purpose for that? Wonders and signs were designed to attract attention and to point to spiritual truth. For example, the response to Peter's healing of a paralyzed man shows that purpose clearly. In Acts chapter 9, verse 35, it talks about the people of that region after they witnessed the healing of the paralyzed man. Verse 35 says, they turned to the Lord. But why did God allow these miracles? Well, he was confirming the apostles. The apostles were his messengers. He was confirming the message from the messenger. You might ask, well, what about today? The need for miracles, by the way, ended with the passing of the apostolic age and the completion of Scripture. So how can we know who is legitimate? Today, well, we can determine who speaks for God by comparing their teaching to God's revelation in Scripture. Look at the Bible. Well, although the sign gift of miracles is no longer operating, God still performs miracles. However, they're not public signs like those in the apostolic era. The greatest of all miracles God performs today is when he transforms a sinner into his beloved child. When someone becomes like his son, Jesus Christ, that is a miracle. Those kind of miracles occur in the life of the church that's committed to the fulfillment of its spiritual duties. So clearly, they were a miraculous church. Number three, that we they were a sharing church. They were a sharing church. In these early days, before divisions affected the church, all who believed were together. They possessed a spiritual unity, but also a practical oneness. Some people think that having all things in common, as it says here in Acts 2, indicates some communal living. My friends, the first Christian church was not a commune, nor does the passage offer support for such a view. Why? The family is the basic social unit in God's design. Such sharing and mutual meeting of the needs of pilgrims was a long-standing tradition in Israel during the great religious feasts. The inns could not accommodate the huge influx of people to Jerusalem during those feast times. As a result, the common people opened their homes and they shared their resources with the visitors. Many members of the early church were saved while visiting Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They now stayed to be a part of the new work of God. So the rest of the church met their needs. Well, some ask, that sounds like a form of communism. Is it a form of communism? The short answer is no. It's evident from the imperfect tense of the verbs selling and distributing. So that denotes continuous past action. They did not at any point sell everything and then pool the proceeds into some common pot. Such a principle for Christian living would have removed the responsibility 
of each believer to give in response to the Holy Spirit's prompting. Further, it is clear from verse 46 that individuals still owned homes. According to verse 45, what actually happened was that personal property was sold as anyone might have need. It was an indication of immense generosity as people gave not only their present cash or goods, but also their future in acts of sacrificial love to those in need. And it's clear from Peter's words to Ananias, or Ananias in Acts 5 verse 4 that such selling was purely voluntary. Ananias and Sapphira sinned not by refusing to part with their possessions, but by lying to the Holy Spirit. Finally, in no other church described in Acts was this pattern of selling property repeated. Sharing was not limited to material things, by the way, but it included spiritual benefits and ministry as well. Verse 46 says that day by day they continued to meet in the temple. Why? They went to the temple for the hours of prayer and no doubt to also witness to the unbelievers. However, their times of fellowship were not limited to the temple. So it was, it was a formal as well as informal thing. It says they were breaking bread in their homes. That's the informal part. They were eating their meals together. Breaking bread refers to the communion service. The eating of meals together referred to the love feast that would accompany the Lord's Supper. In other words, they modeled the principles laid down by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, which says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Let's move on to number four. It was a joyful church. The church of Jerusalem, this first church, was a joyful church. Notice in verse 46, it says they were glad. They, they had generous hearts. They were praising God. So it should not surprise us that a unified, sharing church was also a joyful church. The word glad, by the way, it means to rejoice. One of the key reasons for their joy was that they were generous. Praising God also produced joy. To praise God is to recite his wonderful works and attributes. The goal of the first church, church was to exalt the Lord, and that produced true happiness. Those who glorify themselves will never know lasting joy because joy comes to those who give God glory. Let's have a look at our third main point. We're talking about a model church. This model church ended up producing a spiritual impact. Model church produces a spiritual impact. Look at the end of verse 47, because it says, first of all, that they had favor with people. Having favor with all the people, it says. Their spiritual duties and spiritual character ended up granting them favor with all the people. They were still going to the temple. They were being open about their faith so that all could see and then experience their transformed lives. Later came the intense persecution by the Jews. 
And they proved true the words of Jesus in John 13, verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So they had a spiritual impact by, number one, having favor with all the people. But that's not it. Look at number two, because it says they had blessing from God, because the Lord added to their number. That's what verse 47 says. They were a growing church. Therefore, we can say that effective evangelism was the ultimate impact of their spiritual duties and spiritual character. Notice that it was the Lord that was adding to the church those who were being saved. Jesus Christ is the head of his church doing this work. And so this truth reminds us that God is sovereign in salvation. The imperfect tense of the verb translated added, along with that phrase day by day, indicates that people were continually being saved as they observed the conduct of the believers. They were so unified and joyful and spirit-filled. So unified and joy and spirit-filled were they that their very existence was a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. Now here's the point, my friends. True evangelism is not a program. True evangelism flows from the life of a healthy church, flows from the life of individual Christians. Well, this brief glimpse of the first church gives valuable insight into what makes a healthy church worthy of the name. They had the proper devotion to the duties of the Spirit. And the proper devotion to the duties produced the proper character, which in turn produces a powerful impact. 